0: Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Anne Wand. On today's show, we'll be talking about English language policy and UK security. Our guest for today is Dr. Kamran Khan from the University of Lleida in Catalonia, Spain, and visitor at King's College London. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. As for usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Kamran, would you like to start?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a green tea. Uh, so it's the drink for the day. Uh, and so, um, yeah, So my research uh, started up in uh, English language and citizenship. So how people became citizens. Uh, and so that's closely linked to, or it became closely linked to um, measures of security in terms of border making and surveillance. And so uh, this natural shift was uh, looking at English within security contexts.
0: Excellent. Well, um, before we get going, I have a very important question to ask you. How is the weather in Catalonia?
1: Uh, Not bad. It's um, it's still quite cool, but um, we've got a nice blue sky today. So cool
0: cool by British standards, or cool by Catalonian standards?
1: Um, they're they're not too dissimilar. The winters actually not that dissimilar. I don't think not where we are. So um, yeah, it's I don't have any degrees, but it's um. Still a bit chilly, but the sunshine at least. So. so
0: you'll get snow next week?
1: Maybe, maybe.
0: Really, really. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, what sort of work are you doing specifically at King's College?
1: Uh, okay, so um, a few years ago, um, I'll go a step back, actually. Uh, during my PhD, which was about someone becoming a British citizen, um, uh, one of the things that came up in the media discourse was... Um, the way linked to border control and surveillance and things like that, and so I became interested in um, security. But there weren't, weren't too many other people interested. In I mean, I didn't know uh, not, not in that context anyway. Uh, and around uh, just after my PhD, I met uh, Ben Rampton, Constantine Charalambos, and Panayota Charalambos, who were linked to Kings at the time. Uh, and then we started, you know, a series of exchanges. We had a few events, um, so we've done quite a lot of work together. And we just keep kept that work going really. And so now we have, um, we have like a, a group now, which is called the uh, language in insecurity in everyday practices, I think. And, um, so we're continuing building on that. So we have different contexts. Uh, so, um, and Paniyoto work on Cyprus and, uh, learning of t- uh, Turkish, for example, within the kind of, uh, post-conflict context. I'm interested more in um, language policy around citizenship um, uh, the way language is linked to uh, Muslims and Islamophobia uh, and um, yeah and there's other people who are doing things there as well so um, so we it's kind of gives us a chance to bring all our work together um, there's not too many of us around maybe at the moment so it gives us a chance to build build our kind of interest in
0: Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things I found quite interesting um, is how you are able to tie language policies to issues specifically around Islamophobia. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, in particular, how did you come across this topic?
1: Um, well, uh, it was at, uh, so at the beginning of my PhD. One of the key things that happened was um, David Cameron giving a speech at the security conference in Munich. And he started talking about um, the way that uh, they're going to kind of promote and rebrand English language learning. And that was in the same um, speech about terrorism and uh, extremist ideology amongst Muslims, obviously referring to Muslims in that respect. So I found it really strange that he'd bring all these things together. So my background is actually as an ESOL teacher. So I've been in the classroom with, with immigrants And I found it just really, it was just a really weird mix. And then on top of that, nobody really said, nobody thought it was strange. People just accepted it. And, um, I, yeah, as I said, I could see from the discourses that was analyzing for my, um, like the introduction of the citizenship requirements in 2001, 2005 and that period. And, um, I just, I just found it odd. And, um, so I kept picking away at it. And so while I was doing my PhD and doing that, I maintained this interest in security because things were changing, more things were happening. There were more links being made like explicitly and implicitly around uh, language and security. And so that, that's where it came from, really.
0: Okay. Uh, you just recently, last year, I believe, uh, came out with a book. Could you tell us about the book and the most current research that you produced within that book?
1: Yeah, the book's not out yet. Still oh, my apologies. It up. Um, um, but I, it's, um, it's my PhD. So it's uh, following someone through the citizenship process. Um, So going through the Life in the UK test, um, just general day-to-day stuff, ESOL education, and then actually getting to the end of the ceremony. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that you just don't think about. Uh, For example, um, a lot of the people in the community, the Yemeni community, um, the people with really low levels of literacy and low levels of uh, English, finding ways to pass the test, basically.
0: And which test would this be?
1: The Life in the UK citizenship test. Okay. So it's, um, it's about like history and culture and laws and things like that. So it's, you know, it's quite tough for someone who's maybe doesn't have time either to, to go to classes. So that was the main thing about the book. Uh, the most recent things I'm doing, um, I finished a citizenship project at the University of Leicester, an ESRC project with uh, Leah Basel, Pierre Montfort, uh, Barbara Mitzel and Dr. David Bartram. And so we took a different look at the process, the same citizenship process. Um, where we interviewed 158 people in Western London, mm-hmm. and so we got different kind of accounts of how they got through that. Um, so that was the last project I was on, and then I'm still writing things about Islamophobia mainly at the moment.
0: Okay, well, could we talk a bit about some of the work that you have given me to look at, uh, specifically with regards to an edited volume called "Engaging Super Diversity." Uh, Am I allowed to give the name of the title Um, since that? Okay. So So the title of the chapter that you gave me was called Citizenship Secularization and Suspicion in UK ESOL Policy. And uh, I was wondering if you could, before I dive into questions, tell us briefly what that article is about.
1: Yeah, so it's about... um, So we, in the UK, we didn't have a standardized test uh, for citizenship. And then post-2001... Um, there were riots in the north of England, um, between mainly British Asian Pakistanis and uh, far right extremists. And it kind of escalated to the point where there were these riots and, um, after the riots, one of the things that politicians were saying, almost unchallenged, Adrian Blackledge, who was my supervisor, um, he's written a book about this, um, was this idea that somehow people weren't uh, communicating together and they weren't into, uh, and the blame was on the migrants. We're not trying to speak English. And so that, you know, so, so that's a lot of, you know, it's, it's quite a big leap of faith, almost to go through all the different steps to get from uh, not learning English to that violence. And um, so that that was on the one hand, but actually, the security literature that's come out in the last you know, 15, 20 years, uh, particularly securitization, um, the the I think the theory I use where you can see very specific directions that the discourse takes to allow them to frame it as a security issue. Um, And so that's what it's about. That chapter is about that shift initially, and then what's happened afterwards where we've had, you know, kind of no English language requirements to a constant tweaking of it and and actually making it more difficult, I think. Um, So I was kind of tracking that over the period of a few years and, and brought it up to where we are now.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we dive into that just a little bit more, um, just so our audience can kind of get an idea of of the interesting work that you're doing. Uh, Just in the title alone, the word securitization, can you tell our listeners what that means and how that relates to your research?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a bit of a history. So traditionally, security was seen as uh, something, it comes from international relations, and it's traditionally seen as something that was, uh, you know, particularly before the fall of the Berlin Wall about something about military and external threats and... And liquidization
0: you know as well for financial offices,
1: right? Sure, yeah. Uh, so it was seen as that uh, that kind of thing, but what's happened, there's been kind of a shift in the way it's been conceptualized where it's more about, you know, threats among us and the way that risk is spread out through society and especially amongst immigrants, for example. That's, you know, uh, we don't... When we think about, for example, Islamic terrorism, we don't think about them coming from outside. We think about them being amongst us. Um, That's an example. So, um, so securitization in a nutshell is basically in this case, uh, turning something that's, you know, a fairly normal political issue into something that's kind of exceptionalized and requires a security measure almost, uh, where it becomes so important that you have to take action, basically.
0: So in reference to this idea of securitization, you talk about exceptionalized securitization. And from what I recall, uh, there's this idea of taking extreme measures. So in the case of Islamophobia, um, how do you take a rather radicalized approach and normalize it? In terms of... Well, in in terms of the sense that some of these measures you had said can be quite racist in themselves, but that some policies are created in order to supposedly help the greater good. So how are politicians able to establish these rules, these co- sort of exceptionalized, um, or maybe sure. even extreme measures?
1: You know, It could also be something that's more diffuse, more subtle, eh, which is insecurity, which is what someone like Didier Beagle would say. Um, I think for the case that I, I used there, uh, one, of the, one of the things, it, it's not always successful. Uh, that, that kind of approach. So the classic example is the um, 2003 Iraq War, where people just didn't buy there was an imminent threat. You know, we they went to war, but people, it didn't necessarily mean that people accepted it. And, um, you know, we've been proven right as well, right. Um, so it's not always, uh, it's not always successful. But obviously, it's built on, you know, fairly crude and fairly uh, hardened uh, discourses about immigrants. Uh, for example. Um, And in this case, it's brought a lot of tropes uh, about uh, Islam, very Orientalist uh, tropes uh, back in. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not just one thing, but it's the constant barrage that people are getting. What was was, uh, interesting about that case was that the riots occurred in the same summer as 9-11. So even though they were, you know, one involved Pakistanis and one involved, you know, the attackers in 9-11. What they were able to was frame them together by saying, "Well, you know, they share the same religion," and um, and then it kind of went from there. And obviously, there was that kind of big shock after 9/11, where you know um, the Patriot Act, for example, went through. Um, so uh, I think it was I think it was in that case, in that particular case, there were a few, you know, those few things, which allowed people to kind of accept it, really.
0: And where were these supposed um, attacks that took place between? Um Asians, and uh, the white British community.
1: Yeah, they're in three northern cities. So if I remember correctly, it should be Oldham, Blackburn, and I think Bradford was the third one. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was this kind of summer where that happened. And then as that kind of died down, then you had nine eleven, uh, which at, at the start of September, right, you know. So um, yeah, I think I think even in one of the reports, I think it's the Denham report, they even make reference so the the general report was an independent review about what happened in the riots. They actually even made reference to 9/11. About I can't remember exactly, but even the fact that it was in there was somehow framing him within that same um, kind of. I mean, the other thing it does as well, it puts a split between migrant communities as well, because it's saying, well, not all migrants are bad, but this particular group.
0: Interesting. Well, uh, you said also in your um, the article that you sent over that the former British Prime Minister David Cameron gave a speech, as you had mentioned before, in 2001 where he stated that multiculturalism as a form of integration has failed. And I wanted to know from you, why do you think he said that? And more importantly, do you think he is correct?
1: Um, well, I think, I think it, uh, if I remember correctly, in that period of a few years, I don't think he was the first one to say it. Uh, so, for example, I think even Angela Merkel, if I remember correctly, maybe even said something like that. In Australia, I remember definitely there was a politician. Uh, Costello was his name, I don't remember his first name. Who said he was? You know that we'd kind of seeded uh, ground to. Uh, I think he said something like a mushy kind of multiculturalism, and um, I think a lot of it's the. Uh, I think a lot of it's a backlash. I mean, Muslims are the prime target of this. Usually, that you know that these different things that Muslims do, like eat different meats, and uh, maybe the women may cover their hair or whatever. Um, all these things of you know they're very visible markers about you know people who are different um so i think i think the reason maybe why it's you know you can ab- you can absolve a lot of, lot, lot of the factors uh, or the lot of the blame uh, by saying they failed to integrate i mean you know we had the economic crisis as well um, i mean he gave that gave that speech in 2011 so the economic crisis was you know about 2008 so you know it gives you a very uh, a very very feasible scapegoat you know, by blaming uh, this group. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's all those factors. And yeah, uh, and then the fact that you t- we've had more terrorist attacks as well, as every time kind of reaffirmed that and, to, and, and the tendency is then we have to be hard, we have to you know go even harder. Have, you know, we have to go even harder to make people uh, assimilate. Uh, I mean, especially after, for example, Charlie Hebdo, um, you know, it went again, that, you know, values and freedom of speech and um, these type of things. So uh, eventually, you know, it's a cumulative effect as well. So um, all those things uh, kind of build up. Um, whether I think multiculturalism's failed, um, I guess I would be from that generation that would be considered being brought up as multicultural, you know, within that multicultural tradition. Um, and I, I don't think it did. To be honest, um, you know, uh, on the if we go the other way, I don't see any evidence that assimilation has made things better. If you know what I mean. Um, you know, we've seen, for example, in our project, we, we spoke to over 150 people about the uh, life in the UK test, which is basically an assimilation tool. It's the whole idea as you go through the test, and it creates this kind of particular citizen. And we saw that it actually just reestablished particular inequalities, particularly towards women of colour, for example, having access to, uh, you know, uh, English language classes. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, actually, their funding has been cut, and they're the ones who are actually who actually feel it the most uh, and on top of that originally there was a um, two ways to become a citizen one was to take the life in the UK test then the other one was to take an ESOL qualification so you'd spend a term or a year in an ESOL classroom and uh, you know you could learn English that way and actually that ESOL route has been cut uh, and on top of that the funding's you know being cut there's been promises it'd be reinvested so you know all those things um you know, I don't, there's no real sign that the assimilations worked, you know. So um, that would be, that'd be my kind of argument on that.
0: Well, I think you bring up some very good points, which sort of um, leads me to a series of, of following questions in terms of this life of the UK exam. Uh, how has it changed in the years as a result of immigration policy?
1: Yeah, so uh, there was an, an initial version, which was, an, I think, the... Uh, There's one argument about whether we should have the test at all. Um, So like Tim McNamara and Kerry Ryan talk about how there's a difference between fairness and justice. So fairness is whether if you take the test in London and I take the test in Birmingham, whether we're taking a similar test, you know, whether it's kind of administratively, you know, comparable. Uh, And then justice is whether actually people should be subjected to it in the first place. So I think that's kind of the first argument. So I've always been on the side that I don't think it is just, uh, but let's take it into the fact that we do have a test whichever, whatever we think uh 2005 they had a test which um you know it, it was kind of ridiculed a bit at the time as well for having these questions like um you know if someone the, if somebody spills their drink in the pub what would you do and it had like you know is, is you know it's kind of marked a little uh, then they kind of uh, changed it in 2007 and kind of uh, added a few more things then it was kind of left alone for a while and then 2005 13 after the uh, coalition government uh, is revised. But uh, this is actually what our uh, participants in the Leicester project said was, some of them said actually the the other tests were actually helped them a bit more. They found out about services. In political discourse, that was kind of interpreted as people are learning to sponge. Sponge in
0: what sense?
1: Well, you know, learn the systems around um, getting welfare um, benefits and things like that. But that's the way it was interpreted, you know, they were saying, so they said we're going to need more about, uh, less about, I think there's even a quote about that from a politician where he said, we need less of that and more history and more culture. Well, that was
0: David Cameron, wasn't it? He was quite frustrated in the sense there wasn't a history section.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't remember who exactly it was now, that, 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 but it, the, there was definitely this quote that we need to put more history, we need more culture. And um, so that's what they did basically. And so now you have quite a lot of um, questions about, you know, history and, then obviously there's questions about what type of history. Then do you include? Do you include all the colonialism, and do you, should you include all of the you know the parts that people don't like talking about? But anyway, um, so it's been it's been changed in terms of content and uh, what there is now, which there wasn't in two thousand and seven, uh, with the Life in the UK test qualification. There's a speaking and listening um, requirement as well, a B one. Mm-hmm. So you need to take a test and then B1. So it's.
0: Could you tell the listeners what the B1 level exam is in terms of the CEFR standards? Uh,
1: so uh, in as an ESOL teacher, we didn't tend to say we we'd say something like pre-intermediate, intermediate level. So that's where we'd be looking at um, for for B one Yeah. So it's it should be A1, A2, and then B1, which would be the third uh, of those levels.
0: Okay. And the CEFR standards are, of course, run uh, through the European Union. That's great, yeah. Um, I think this is quite interesting because I guess one thing you do tie into, especially towards the end of the article, is this idea that uh, language teachers end up playing a role in border security, especially when it comes to validating students' immigration status. How is that even possible?
1: Uh, well, it's always, it's, always, um, it's always been, I mean, as I said, I was an ESOL teacher as well. And so we've always had a very, politi- there's always been a very political dimension to what we do. Um, and yeah, I mean, just in the daily life, you know, you had to check whether you, your students could even access the classes as well. Um, and obviously there's all sorts of issues around that. Um, I think where, where now it's even gone way beyond that is um, now you have the implementation of the counterterrorism things like um, prevent. Um, So you have this double burden of border making and then being responsible for some sort of uh, spotting signs of radicalization as well. And so that's a really, you know, it's a really heavy, it's a really, you know, heavy responsibility, especially because it's quite a quite precarious sector as it is. Mm. Um, So yeah, so it's it's, it's kind of always, it's kind of always been there. And I think that's one of the issues I have with it was that if you, ESOL education is not, a, it's one of the subjects that's not allowed to be just about education. It's considered part of integration, for example, it's directly linked. So you end up not talking about teaching practice and all of these things. And we're being kind of dragged across in terms of being linked to kind of, um, you know, issues about integration and models of, pluralism and things. And, you know, if you're a teacher, I mean, you're aware of that, but you, you want to take care of your class, you want to prepare. And so it's, it's, I think it's quite unique, uh, almost a unique area of teaching, I think.
0: And you do say as well that ESOL classes end up being characterized as the front line of government security policy, which I yeah. think, as you said, puts a lot of pressure on educators' shoulders to say, well, not only am I teaching a language, not only am I teaching a culture, but I'm I'm almost kind of representing the state in some respects as well.
1: Yeah, it, it, you've got that aspect and the other aspect, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, you've got very marginalized, vulnerable students in some cases. So you've got this kind of role of, you know, um, dealing very deep uh, pastoral duties. And, uh, you know, you could be really helpful for someone as well. Uh, and then obviously now you've been, you know, saddled with all these institutional, political kind of um, duties. So it's, yeah, it's, I, I think, I mean, I, it's been a while now since I've been an ESOL teacher because I've moved into research, but, um, you know, it just feels like that there's just responsibility being added onto additional responsibility, so.
0: Well, and it seems as well that some of your research also ties in with, with ideas of, of terrorism, as you've already mentioned, which can overlap mm-hmm. into issues of terrorism in the US and various other countries as well, which I think, you know, the idea that somehow language and terrorism could somehow be linked. I think there'd be quite a few people that would say, I don't see the connection. But it seems like what you've done and what some of your colleagues has done is said actually there's more to it. It's not just we're teaching them the fundamentals. We're not teaching them phonetics. But there's also um, several other deeply seated components to it as well that maybe people, sociolinguists, haven't necessarily taken into consideration yet.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, there's actually two examples, two kind of very different set of examples I can give to show you that. One is um, after Charlie Hebdo, what happened there, uh, I think it was the one of the, I think it was maybe a secretary who worked in the offices. When she described the terrorists who came, uh, you know, when they came in, the first thing she said was they came in and they spoke perfect French. And so her first kind of description of them was not, it wasn't actually about beards. It wasn't about uh, anything you would think. Actually, the first thing was, no, they spoke. I know. I don't believe this. They they spoke perfect French. Now, um, as you know, I'm here in Catalonia, and we had a terrorist attack in Barcelona. And one of the things that came up was a few people saying, "Well, I, I knew the kids. They spoke perfect Catalan. I just don't know why they did it." So there's obviously some sort of connection between where did we go wrong, or you know, how did how did we not spot? You know, you know how how you know they 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 completely you know outthought you know, outflanked us really with their perfect French. So there is a link because people link uh, their language to some sort of, you know, character that doesn't do these things, and did somehow been, you know, swept aside, that's on the one hand. Um, and then on the other, um, the other examples that we, you see really clear links, is these cases, um, where I'll, I'll use the ones in America, actually, where, you know, people go into a plane, and they may say something in Arabic on the phone, and then get kicked off the plane. Now, um, there's no crime in Saying inshallah or something—that's that's not what the crime. But that it's not really about whether they said inshallah or not. It's the fact that somehow they've identified themselves as someone who could potentially do something. that's gonna basically what you're insinuating is I think this person might be a terrorist um, because obviously it's not a crime to say those words. So uh, and actually that's the, those words actually play a real important function because. Um, it's not tr- if you had to treat that as a criminal act, you'd need and you took it to court, they'd probably laugh in your face, because they'd say, Well, nothing's happened, right. But what's happened now is that there's such a hysteria about this is that you by saying inshallah, you're basically placing yourself the interpretation of that is you're placing yourself within a pre crime zone, and a terrorism prevention. And so actually, for that, you don't need to go to a court, you can you're just predicting what may happen. So actually, you don't need you in that case, you your due process and elements of justice actually disappear because you're just predicting what's going to happen. And actually those words are really significant because it's it's those things that are opening yourself up to to that kind of uh, injustice, really.
0: Absolutely, and I think it really ties into this idea of ignorance, first of all, that Absolutely. is pervasive for those that don't take the time to really understand these, these languages and, and the people that might actually speak them. But also how much language functions as an identity marker, whether you want to be associated with the supposed stereotypes with that identity marker is kind of neither here nor there, but there is sort of a, a label that's placed upon people, whether, whether we want that label or
1: not. Absolutely, yeah. And just to add to that as well, it's not only Muslims that end up being um, drawn into this. There's cases of people, and, and, and this is how you can tell it's very racialized. Um, there are cases, and I've, I've just written about one case of uh, someone who was Sikh, has a turban, has a beard, um, was speaking in Punjabi, he says. Uh, and he was dragged off a bus because someone interpreted, you know, actually said he was speaking in Arabic and he was talking about a bomb. And actually the reality was he was talking in Punjabi and he was just talking to some guy he just met on the bus. Um, so that's the level of ignorance where actually, you don't actually need to be a Muslim, but you just need to be more or less looking like one. And you Or know, what people sounds- have
0: decided somebody who practices Islam looks
1: like yeah exactly
0: do you find as an academic and i can i realize this can be quite contentious but i wouldn't be surprised if you've come across this do you find as an academic that your research or results sometimes conflict with some of um i would say maybe government's approaches to certain issues so maybe your research suggests one thing but maybe the government is, is possibly saying something else
1: yeah um I mean, we, we, we've done two projects, a citizenship, for example. Um, and I know, for example, Leah Bassell actually presented some of it in, um, in the House of Lords for like a consultation uh, on on citizenship and integration. And I know, I mean, some of the stuff she said that came out of the project was fairly well received. And then there was stuff that she was getting a lot of pushback on. Um, so So we have kind of, personal, interactional evidence of, you know, sometimes it doesn't really say the things they want it to say. Um, and I think in my, my own work, um, about security, at least, um, I think, I think there's major, I think there's a government line, because because it's also, I, I don't know if you remember even a while ago, there was this um, David Cameron thing about how uh, Muslim women needed to learn English, because they need to stop their sons going to ISIS. And they couldn't, and they, you know, there was this kind of thing that, you know, they couldn't communicate. And that's why they were losing their kids or wherever. And um, there's, there's so much empirical stuff that tells us and, yeah, a lot of academic work that tells us, for example, this radicalization theory stuff. There's a lot of flaws in it. Um, but obviously, you know, it's, it gives people a very, uh, very convenient narrative of, you know, point A and point B and everything that happens in between. And obviously, it's more complex than that. And uh, in my research, I've tried to show some of these things at least. Well,
0: and I think you make a good point when you say that um, researchers sometimes look at things in terms of snapshots. But then in reality, we should be looking at things in terms of a continuum. Because as you said, there's a variety of variables that can affect whether people make one decision as opposed to another. And that it's never just black or white. Sure. And I suppose my last question is a bit... uh, just more out of sheer curiosity, do you miss teaching ESL?
1: Uh, I do sometimes, yeah. Um, I do. It was, it was it was a really interesting part of my life, and um, yeah, I, I sometimes do. I do. Um, it was good fun. I mean, that was the other. I mean, it just with being with your students was good fun because um, it's not like teaching in a secondary school. You teach people who, in my case, a lot of people were older than me as well. Uh, But, you know, they lived around my neighborhood, for example. And so we had a lot of our own little in-jokes and things. And um, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But it's really precarious. Um, The funding for ESOL is not great. And, um, you know, it's always tough. You know, you're you're wondering whether you're going to get made permanent and those type of things. But the one thing I must say as well, it's quite emotionally draining as well um, because you're you're dealing with all manner of, you know, students you know some have been through some really hard times and i'm no you know i'm no psychologist but i felt you know i'm dealing with people who are really traumatized and uh you know i hear some of the stories as well you know from afghanistan and sudan and things like that so um yeah i i do miss it sometimes yeah i must say um but um you know it's, it's But you're
0: happy day. where you are
1: yeah I, i'm just, Oh, i'm happy uh, doing what i'm doing and um yeah, I think, you know, just with the strikes and everything that's happening in the UK as well, you just, you just hope things will get better. But in terms of enjoying what I do, yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wands. And I'd like to thank you again, Kamran, uh, for joining us at the studio this afternoon. And for those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails One, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. In the meantime, thanks for listening and have a great week.